that are still doughy on the inside. Things that might be just a little bit dangerous because that egg that's not quite cooked might actually make you sick. Platitudes. Pithy truths that we say often enough that sometimes we just say them without thinking. We've heard other people say them, and then we encounter a situation and we say, whatever it is, because we think that's just what you say at that time, and then we hear ourselves say those things and we go, oh, I don't actually believe that. And I've just represented myself as if I do, because it came out of my mouth. And sometimes we hear good Christian people say these things so many times, we think they must be in the Bible. We think Jesus must have said these things. Like God will never give you more than you can handle. Must be a quote from Jesus, right? We know so little about the Bible, we think that maybe that might actually be true. One of those phrases is, love the sinner, hate the sin. <clears throat> so we can name about a hundred things that are wrong with that statement, and, and I'm going to. <laughs> but, before we get there, what's, what's the best part? What's the intention, the good intention around this statement? Loving the sinner. Which is, and there's the theory that um, you can distinguish between a person and what they do. You can distinguish between a which person and what they do. Thing. Which is helpful, yes. Anything else that's good about this statement? Snappy. <laughs> <laughs> there's the word love in it, right? That's a good thing. I don't see the deal of hating sin. Hating a sin. Right. Sin is a bad thing. Right? So, the truth of it is, though, as Mark Lowry, the Christian comedian, says, love the sinner, hate the sin. How about love the, the sinner, hate your own sin? <laughs> I don't have time to hate your sin. <laughs> there are too many of you. Hating my sin is a full-time job. How about you hate your sin, I'll hate my sin, and let's just love each other. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? So, sin. What is sin? It's this big word that carries a lot of weight. And sometimes I think we don't even really understand what we mean when we say sin. In my understanding, sin is something that stands between you and God, between me and God. And it might be something different for you than it is for me. Something that I do might be a sin when I do it, and when you do it, it doesn't stand between you and God. I have no idea what is standing between you and God right in this very moment. I have no idea what idea you're holding on to so tightly 
understanding a greater truth? I have no idea what is standing between you and God. It's for each individual to come to understand and deal with themselves internally. Sin is something that harms ourselves or others, either explicitly or implicitly. And unless I can clearly see beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are hurting yourself or you are hurting someone else, what business do I have claiming to even comprehend someone else's? So love the sinner, hate the sin. Jesus never said that, just to be clear. Jesus never said anything like that. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Love extravagantly and amazingly without exception, without caveat, without qualification. Love. John Palavitz, who's the pastor of North Raleigh Community Church, says this. And he names that usually when we use this phrase, we're talking only about sexuality. There's really maybe 1% of context or less, when we use this phrase in a way that we're not talking about someone's sexuality, when we use the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. So he says, and he uses L-T-S-H-T-S for love the sinner, hate the sin, because it's kind of a long phrase. When a follower of Christ claims that they love the sinner and hate the sin, they are saying two things loudly and unquestionably to an LGBTIQ person. One, that he or she knows that person's body and heart from a distance better than the person in question knows from the inside. And two, that what those people are telling them is involuntarily involuntary about themselves. They are characterizing as despicable. They are declaring them as inherently defective, vile, evil. I'm not sure those who will love the sinner, hate the sin so casually have any real idea how damaging and hurtful it is. What it really speaks to the hearer's heart, if they did, I'm certain that they would see the complete absence of Jesus in it. To say to an LGBTQ, IQ person, I love you, but I hate your sexuality, is the same as saying to someone, I love you, but the colors of your eyes disgust me. Or, I love you, but I hate the way you laugh. Or, I love you, but God believes that the freckles on your shoulders and cheeks are an abomination. Love the sinner, hate the sin, is not as its practitioners allege, a balanced phrase, but a hateful phrase. One that never makes a relationship between two parties better or closer or richer 
It only severs or prevents the very kind of intimate fellowship Jesus forged, even with those he disagreed with. To utter it is to stand in complete opposition to the life he lived and the ministry he practiced. The word but is a powerful word, isn't it? <clears throat> when we use the word but, it means whatever I said previously, it's only a little bit true. Or maybe it's not true at all. I say, you did a really great job on that, but next time I wish you would. Or, we're really great friends, but you can come up with a million things, right? So if, we, if I say, I love you, but, or I love them, but, or I love those people, but, you know that what I'm saying next is probably going to be offensive. Because if we start out and we claim to love, and then we say, but, and we add qualifications, we're not really loving. That's not really our intention. So you might have heard that religion has a checkered history of ju judgmentalism. Have you heard that? Like, throughout the history of the world, religion has a history of judgmentalism. Religion, through the ages, has um, thought that its job was to protect itself, was to defend itself, was to condemn others. And God knows Christianity was been guilty of this, like, enter the Crusades, really can't deny that one, can we? So today I would like to share with you a story of religion protecting itself, guarding itself, and it's the story of the beginning of the church and those who are protecting the religion are the Jewish Council of Elders. And Basically, we don't have stories in the Bible of Christians, you know, being a religion because Christianity wasn't a religion until after the Bible was written. But So we're not judging the Jewish council. We're judging ourselves because we are exactly the same. So this is the story of the beginning of the church and the people who were organizing a movement and making a name for those who followed Jesus. I'm reading from the book of Acts in the fifth chapter. Those were amazing days, with many signs and wonders being performed through the apostles among the people. The church would gather as a unified group in Solomon's porch, Enjoying great respect by the people of the city, though most people wouldn't risk publicly affiliating with them. Even so, record numbers of believers, both men and women, were added to the Lord. The church's renown was so great that when Peter walked down the street, people would carry out their sick relatives 
hoping the shadow, his shadow, would fall on some of them as he passed. Even people from towns surrounding Jerusalem would come, bringing others who were sick, tormented, and tormented by unclean spirits, all whom were cured. Of course, this popularity elicited a response. The high priest and his affiliates in the Sadducean party were jealous. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But that night, a messenger of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and led them to freedom. So then they continued the story of how those who were imprisoned and released, they didn't run away. They didn't hide. They went back to doing what they had been doing before, which was preaching in the public square and telling people about Jesus, because that's what they, that's the only thing they could do. They weren't there to protect themselves. They were just there to share about Jesus. And so when the council gets ready to meet and says, go get the prisoners, and the people come back and they say, they're not there, they find out, oh, well, they're just over, like, even closer than the prison was, and just go have them come here and we'll talk to them. So they are there to hear how these people can defend themselves, these people that miraculously got out of prison. And so Peter and the apostles make this statement. If we have to choose between obedience to God and obedience to any human authority, then we must obey God. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from death. You killed Jesus by raising him on a tree, but God has lifted him high to God's own right hand as the prince, as the liberator. God intends to bring Israel to a radical rethinking of our lives and to a complete forgiveness of our sins. We are witnesses to these things. There is another witness, too, the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to all who choose to obey. The council was furious and would have killed them. But Gamaliel, that's a name to remember, be like Gamaliel, a Pharisee in the council, respected as a teacher of the Hebrew scriptures, stood up and ordered the men to be sent out so the council could confer privately. And then he gave his own speech. Fellow Jews, you need to act with great care in your treatment of these fellows. Remember when a man named Theodos rose to notoriety? He claimed to be somebody important, and he attracted about 400 followers. But when he was killed, his entire movement disintegrated, and nothing came of it. After him came Judas, that Galilean fellow, at the time of the census. He also attracted a following, but when he died, his entire movement fell apart. So here's my advice. In this case, just let these men go. Ignore
ignore them. If it is just another movement arising from human enthusiasm, it will soon, it will die out soon enough. But then again, if God is in this, you won't be able to stop it. Unless, of course, you are ready to fight against God. The council was convinced. So they brought the apostles back, they were flogged, again told not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released. As they left the council, they weren't discouraged at all. In fact, they were filled with joy for being considered worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of Jesus' name. And constantly, whether in public, in the temple, or in their homes, they kept teaching and proclaiming Jesus as the Anointed One, the Liberating King. What would it look like for us to let people that we vehemently disagree with, to the point of believing that they are actively committing sins, just go about their way. And if they come to ruin, fine. And if they seem to find fulfillment and purpose and are somehow seeming to do the work of God, then we might actually come to see that they were right and we were wrong. That is Gamaliel's suggestion for the Jewish Council of Elders to do with the followers of Jesus. So what if we, as followers of Jesus, we could have that much grace with others? To let them go about their stuff, even if we don't know what it is. And not have to judge. Not have to condemn. Last Sunday morning, here in this space, I learned of the tragedy of the mass shooting of 49 people killed and 53 injured. And I was shocked by the hatred that provoked the actions of a lone shooter who went to a gay nightclub in an act of hatred and violence to kill. And immediately we went to terrorism and who to blame and how those other people had done this to us. But as the story was revealed, it seems that this was an act of hate, inspired by the teaching of this young man's religion, and quite possibly an act of self-hatred and condemnation.
accept some of the teachings of my own religion to the same hatred that I saw acted out in this mass shooting. The church in which I was ordained as a pastor, the United Methodist Church, claims that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. I am ashamed of those four words. It is a fact that I wish to hide from others. It is not my belief nor is it the belief of many other United Methodists. But I have to acknowledge my complicity with teaching of hatred. I am a part of a system that spreads messages of judgment and hate. On this auspicious week, we had gathered as the New England Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church Thursday and Friday and Saturday in Manchester, New Hampshire. And because other United Methodists in New England understood their complicity with the teachings of hatred, with these teachings of hating the sin, even with the aim of loving the sinner, we envisioned and embodied an unauthorized act of repentance, of wearing sackcloth and ashes. This happened as individuals confessed at microphones, as pastors came out the whole body in an act of risk-taking vulnerability. As statements of compassion and support for the victims of the shootings were made, this unauthorized act of repentance lasted for two hours. And for much of that time, individuals were coming forth to receive ashes on their forehead and to receive sackcloth around their necks. It was a sacred space. It was a time of healing. It was a time of repentance. During the next three days, I wore this stole of burlap of sackcloth because I wanted to continue to repent. seemed like a small sacrifice on behalf of those who have been hurt and even murdered because of the teachings of hatred that I am complicit in. You cannot love someone if you label them a sinner. You cannot judge someone first and then love them second. 
cannot love the sinner. If you say, but I love the sinner, but I hate his, her, their sin. The act of repentance that began on Thursday morning led itself into a commitment by those gathered there at conference this week on behalf of the United Methodists in New England, which is you, and every other United Methodist Church. We declared that we stand apart from the condemning statements of the United Methodist Church. We disagree with them. We not only disagree with them in thought and word, but we disagree with them in action. We will not abide them or honor them in any way. We affirmed, together by a two-to-one vote, an act of nonconformity with the United Methodist Church. We embraced our baptismal vows to resist evil and injustice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. Even when our morals or our church teachings or our allegiances are telling us to go along and get along and believe that message of love for the sinner and hate the sin, we claim the truth that we must first and foremost love. With no offense. With no exception. To claim the truth that we are children of God. Each and every one of us is a child of you are a child of God. I am a child of God. And no matter what people say, no matter what people think, each and every one of us is a child of God. And in the words of Lynn Manuel Miranda, when he accepted his Tony on Sunday night after the shooting on Sunday morning, he said, love cannot be killed. Love cannot be kept down because love is love is love is love. Is love. 